so beautiful, a little Beethoven. Hello, and welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today, we're going to have another very interesting show. We're going to be speaking with a neuroscientist about some of the most wonderful subjects that really uh, intrigues us all, and that is the domain of intuition, precognition, premonitions, dream research, and understanding those farther reaches of the human mind, the human potential that we know are there and we tiptoe around and some of us have experiences that are much more direct but don't have a whole lot of good explanations from a scientific point of view about and, uh, well, that's going to get a bit solved this evening by speaking with Julia Mossbridge, who is the author of The Premonition Code, and she'll be speaking with us about some of the things that she has found as a result of her long-term research and interest in the subject. A little bit about Julia. She is a PhD and a scientist at IONS, the Institute of Noetic Sciences, as well as the director of the IONS Innovation Lab. She is also a visiting scholar in the psychology department at Northwestern University. Her research interests are time and the unconscious mind, intuition, dreaming, soundscape influence on mood, models of transformation and transcendence. Dr. Mossbridge received her Ph.D. in Communication Sciences and Disorders from Northwestern University. Her Master's in Neuroscience is from U, uh, University of uh, California, San Francisco, and her B.A. with Highest Honors in Neuroscience from Oberlin. Dr. Mossbridge has also received funding from the National Institutes of Health in her role as postdoctoral fellow in the Psychology Department at Northwestern. Julie Mossbridge is also the author of Unfolding, The Perpetual Science of Your Soul's Work, and writes about her attempts to find the soul in science on her blog, Unfolding Science. And because I am so smitten by the work that Julie has been doing for quite some time now, A Better World has invited her to New York City for a public conversation with me on Tuesday, October 30th at 7 o'clock at the Ascension Church, quite appropriately named, at 12 West 11th Street. And uh, you can get more information about that at www.abetterworld.tv. It is right smack in the center. Tickets are really only $10 or 15 at the door if you uh, don't order them early, which I'd really suggest you do. We're going to have a very special time, and we'll be able to uh, speak with Julia in person. But for now, we do have Julia on A Better World Radio, so it's really my pleasure to introduce you, Julia. Welcome to A Better World. Thanks. Thanks, Mitchell. It's great to be here. So lovely to have you, Julia. So lovely. You know, I'm so excited about this work. I've been sticking my own nose into it uh, really since I was about 13 years old. It was one of those things that just really kind of got me up in the morning and charged my day because I just believed that we as a society were missing, oh, probably about at least three quarters of our human potential. 
And uh, as life went on, I found out that I was right. And uh, so it's always a pleasure for me to meet someone like yourself who has taken this inquiry so seriously that you have done a tremendous amount of scientific research into it, which is something that I have not done. I have used more of my intuitive and inferential powers over time, and I've seen them be borne out through empirical analysis. But uh, I'm, I'm very excited about meeting with you in person as well as today to talk about some of what have you found? What have you found from a scientific point of view that corroborates, that confirms what we really sort of know to be true in our gut? Yeah, well, it's been fascinating. I've been I've been looking at this area my whole life because of my own experiences with the intuition and precognition, but I only started examining precognition scientifically in 2006, I believe. So it's been about 12 years, although I've been mm-hmm. thinking about doing it for about 15, reading the field, reading the literature, et cetera, but only just started my own experiments in 2006. And um, what I have found in a nutshell is, is, of course, all written in the book. So that's that's what yeah. I'm talking about. The book I'm talking about is the new one, Premonition Code. Um, yes. But, but, but I want to summarize that because what I found is, first of all, I convinced myself that the other people who are in this field and have the other scientists who have already done a bunch of work in this field, that they're right. So basically part of it was uh-huh. just convincing myself that what uh-huh. they found was correct. And what they found was Oh, that, are you saying that you were entering with a bit of skepticism about the science? Oh, well, yeah, because I had had my own experiences. But the problem when you're trained in psychology and in cognitive neuroscience, one of the things you learn that is it's really true is that people can fool themselves absolutely. I mean, they're, you know, it's yes. easy to fool yourself. People have faulty We're memories. We're good at that. You can think, oh, yeah. yeah, I had a dream about this, but you didn't actually. So since I was a kid, I've been keeping a dream journal to make sure I didn't fool myself about my precognitive dreams, you know. But still, yeah. there's a certain there's a certain way in which I wanted to get more rigorous about it, and I did have some skepticism about the science. So I started reading about it, and then I finally said, I have to prove this to myself. So I did some experiments. So so what people had shown in the past, um, Dean Radin is one, and 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 Roland McCready is another, but there there are many, um, had shown that even if you don't consciously know, even if you don't consciously have it have the experience of being able to mm-hmm. predict a randomly generated future event, your body yes. actually can do it for you and in a way that's statistically significant. And that's what I had to prove to myself in my own work and then by doing a meta-analysis with Jessica Ives at UC Irvine and, then, and another researcher at um, University of Padova in Italy. So, so I had to convince myself, and then I thought, whoa, this is really – big news why isn't it out there in the headlines so i had to kind of work on bringing it out into the world Uh well we're part of that together right here for sure julia when you say the body um there is of course an entire way of thinking that says that our memory is actually lodged well we know that there are certain brain folds that we say contain memory but it's actually much larger than that it's Uh, Many say, like Wilhelm Reich, one of our great uh, psychoanalysts, said that memory is really lodged in the muscle, so it's literally in the body. And others say it's uh, also 
not exclusively, but also in the field around us, sort of as Rupert Sheldrake talks about our uh, morphogenetic or morphic field. Uh, almost, you could say, almost like our own personal cloud, if you will. How do you, when you say the body, what, I'd love to know what you mean by that. Well, in those experiments, I mean, so I'll, I'll sort of put on both hats, right? I have a hat as a scientist and a hat as an intuitive person or a psychic person or whatever you want to call it, a precog. I like, yes, the, I like the term sure. precog. So uh-huh. my hat as a scientist, when I was talking about the body knowing about randomly selected future events, what I was talking about is uh, physiolog- standard physiological measures such as respiration, heart rate, uh, changes in brain waves, um, changes in gut motility, the skin conductance. Oh, okay. Um, yes. So these yes. kind of like what most people will, on the street would call your body, right? Yes. But that yes. doesn't mean just because you can measure something from the body doesn't mean that the body is the only thing that is involved, right? So I'm going to put mm-hmm. on my um, both my scientist hat, I guess, and my intuitive hat and say, look, it is – it is my intuitive experience and there is scientific evidence for that the physical realm is not the only realm that exists, nor, frankly, is it the only realm that can cause effect in the physical realm. Mm-hmm. So, so I guess what I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, heck, the, we, we call the body uh, this physical thing, but it, there's obviously other things that are impacting it. And when I say obviously... I mean, both intuitively that seems right, but also there's evidence that there could be mental impact, like prayer impact or intentional impact on a physical system that cannot be physical because of the distance that the distances that are involved. So yes, yes. So, I, so there's the sort of the extended body and then the immediate sort of physical body, and I think both are real and both both have important roles. Yes, yes, yes. Well, you can feel like you can take some liberties here with our audience here, Julia, because we, I speak routinely about fields from the point of view of, as I mentioned, Sheldrake's work, which I've been familiar with for decades, as well as uh, more recently uh, another great articulator of the notion of the field. In fact, the name of one of her books is Lynn McTaggart, who goes on at great length to discuss the nature of fields. And it's uh, also, there's the Jungian psychoanalyst, a very dear friend of mine named Michael Conforti, uh, who wrote a book on fields. So I think that we can really feel comfortable in utilizing this notion, not thinking that it is somehow far-fetched. That it's only far-fetched for people who are not actually using all of their cognitive skills from my point of view. <laughs> so we don't have a, an issue well, with that. Um, and that's okay. okay. That's okay. Out. Everybody's right. going to catch on at a certain point. But I'd love for you to unpack a little bit of what you mean by the name of your book, The Premonition Code, so we can kind of delve into that a little bit. Sure, sure. So that's a book I wrote with uh, Teresa Chung, who's a U.K. author, who gets tons of stories of anecdotes about precognition. And she finally said, i got to find a scientist I could write a book with. And she knew me from another project. She asked me to write it with her. So so we have a ton of stories in there, but also the science and the practice of of precognition. And the the point of naming it the premonition code is that um, precognition sounds a little stuffy, 
It's because it's the more scientific <laughs> term. But but yeah. premonition. Premonitions are the felt experience of precognition. Premonitions yeah. are what people people say. Like if they're in a car accident, I had this premonition that would happen. Very few people call That's it precognition. Right. So we're trying to reintroduce the word precognition. But one of the best ways to do that is to start with what everyone knows, which is the you know premonition right. and the code let, part. Let the word premonition open the door. <laughs> exactly, and then the word code is all about. Okay, what does this really mean? What is the code of our of our precognitive experiences? How can we crack the code? How can I, how can we develop our precognitive experiences? Can we develop our precognitive experiences? Yes, we can. How do we do that? And so that's that's what the book is about, really trying to crack the code in your life. And it turns out it really does. Uh, you know, as having trained myself, I had natural precognitive, spontaneous precognitive experiences, but having train myself now in controlled precognition where I can sit down at a desk and say, now I'm going to do some precognitive stuff. Um, it's transformative because of what it does to your experience of yourself and of the world. It's a, it's a powerful, it turns out to be a powerful mystical practice as well as extremely useful. Yes, absolutely. Now you are sort of, um, inspiring me to share a little bit about my experience oh, with this. Uh, <laughs> so, Dr. Mossbridge, this is what happened to me. No, um, okay. Yeah, I, yeah, well, actually, it's not like one incident that I was going to show, though there are many, and frankly, I, uh, I define broadly the whole space that Carl Jung speaks about very fluently of of synchronicity as being a confluence of different inner and outer um, events and energies that come together in such a way that things align, but just aspects mm-hmm. of reality align, and it has a lot to do with our our uh, mental activity and uh, as it connects through the field with with others. And before you know it, you're sort of in the right place at the right time. And I, I, an example of that, Julia, is I was recently in San Francisco for a conference. And um, I, I've been in San Francisco many times, uh, yet I don't really know the city. I kind of drift about, and more than anything, people know who live there. Take me from point A to point B to point C, and everything works out. But I'm not mm-hmm. usually the generator of the direction. So I was using my ways as I had to get over uh, from this global uh, summit on climate change, actually, onto the Italian consulate. And I did not have any idea, but I needed to walk. Well, of the handful of people I know in a city of millions of people, I'm walking down one road, one street, I should say, avenue, and no one else is on it, and I look ahead of me, and who do I see but a friend and colleague of mine, Bill Twist, walking with an Achuar Ecuadorian Amazonian Indian <laughs> toward me. Wow. Out of thousands of streets, hundreds certainly, if not thousands of streets and millions of people, and I know about 0.001% of them, you know, <laughs> we are crossing paths, right? Well, so Just as a funny a little story. About that experience? Can I, please. May, I ask, may I ask you a question about that? Did you have oh, a compulsion please. to take a particular road? 
or did you did you have a compulsion to take a particular road, or did you um, have a compulsion to take a walk, or did you just find yourself doing it? I'm just curious what the experience was. Oh, sure. I definitely said I had been sitting in the conference for so many hours, for a couple of days. I said, I need to walk. So that mm-hmm. part was a, you know, from my will. I'm going to walk. I didn't mm-hmm. know the distance. And I far mistook it because I thought it was going to be about a mile and a half, and it was more like 3.5 miles instead of 1.5. So I really missed that one. But the street that I was walking on, someone had given me some directions. It didn't seem – oh, this is interesting. It didn't seem altogether right and kosher to me, so I varied it a little bit, just I'd say by happenstance. And I was just strolling rather, I don't want to say aimlessly. I was, I had an aim. I had a definite destination. But um, it felt a little random how I ended up on that particular avenue. Does that help to clarify? Julia, oh, did I lose you? Ah, yes. I did. Just rejoined you. Yes. Oh, good. I see that. I know that you are driving along the beautiful West Coast towards San Francisco from LA, and you'll go in and out. Yeah, I don't know if I'll go in and out. There we go. But in any case, no problem. Don't you worry. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I got the impression that um, the compulsion, the I'm going to take a walk, was at the beginning, and then you used ways to get there. So yes. I just think that's a beautiful metaphor because what I have learned in um, training myself in controlled precognition is that you have these two pieces and both need to be satisfied for these things to work out. And one piece is the piece that says, I'm going to do this. It's like it's like the ego or the will or the self or whatever you want to call it that says, do this, this is not my task. Yeah, this is my task. I feel compelled yes. to sit down and do some precognition. Or I feel compelled to go for a walk, right? And yes. then there's a giving over, there's a letting go, there's a receiving, or sort of a yang and then a yin. And mm-hmm. then in the yin, or the receiving part says, okay, oh, I'm going to yes. let this app guide me, or I'm going to let my superconscious guide me, or whatever it is. And, those, oh, yes. and so what you gave is a perfect example of those two parts that need to be present for, the, for precognition to work out. So I would say that's a beautiful example. Oh, wow. Thank you. That's a fine analysis. I understand. It's sort of like a, a yang, which is in the active mode, sort of like you could say initiates it. And then yeah. once you're in movement and motion, then you become more of a receptacle, the yin aspect. And that's what sort right. of takes you to that moment of crossing right. paths, I mean, for instance. Yeah. Right. And it's a, it is a relationship between those two parts of yourself that is really honed in the practice of controlled precognition is that that yeah. relationship. And it's the same relationship that's honed for people who do creative work, right? The part that says, yes. I'm going to sit down and write a book, and then the part that says, here are the words that are coming. Now, this is this brings up a whole subject of, you know, what we refer to as brainwave activity as well as brain coherence, the idea of bringing the two hemispheres of the brain together on one hand, uh, or I should say in one brain, and um, on the other, we <laughs> pardon my puns, I have no control. Um, and, uh, <laughs> 
and uh, talk about, you know, a form of intuition or telepathy, you know, <laughs> a mind yeah. gone wild. Um, and then we've got the alpha and the theta waves that we can analyze, those frequencies that show up also, which also, by the way, uh, they they parallel, they, they um, uh, align with the ideas that we talk about creativity artistic tendencies, as well as intuition when we're in the deeper, inwardly more quiet states. What, what's that all about? Could you talk about okay, that? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's just, let me just say first that everything I'm about to say is truly speculative because a lot of the stuff that you were just mentioning is, an, is based on anecdotal experience of individual intuitives who use, for instance, binaural beats or different kinds of yes. uh, of, of of sort of entrainment sounds or yes. lights to get themselves into a certain state. And so, yes. so there's that. Well, a lot more uh, funny time, energy, and talent needs to be put into the world of precognition research so we can really understand what are the brainwaves that are correlated with this kind of experience, if any, right? It's a yes. tricky problem to solve because um, an interesting thing about precognition is it's very difficult to uh, tie down what happens. So, like, I could sit down for my controlled precognition practice, and the moment I sit down in my chair before I even pick up my pen and before I'm about to write down the centered and get to a place where I can choose to receive this information, at the moment before I pick up my pen, I might have a full blast image of exactly what it is I'm trying to precognize. And so Mm -hmm. if I were a and, and then another day, I won't have a sense of like that at all. I'll just have little bits that come in over a 20-minute period, right? Mm-hmm. And so as a person trained in doing experiments with EEG, that's a nightmare. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a nightmare mm-hmm. because it's all about the timing. It's all about when, when can you get this event to occur. If, because generally people use brainwave experiments to look at things that happen after a stimulus. So I show you a picture of a smiling face and what does your brain do, right? Well, so that's easy to pin down because you look at the second or so after the stimulus. Well, when you're talking about precognition, figuring out when it's occurring is tricky. So you have to make – I've done some sort of tricky experiments trying to figure out when it's occurring, and they end up seeming very boring to people because they're usually like things flashing on a screen or sound, blip and bloop and beep, and and people say, what does this have to do with precognition? But it's all about what is the brain doing right before the blip and the bloop and the bleep. Yeah, um, when it comes right, to the more interesting right. types, right? When it comes to the more interesting types of precognition, there have been a couple studies that seem to show that there's something going on. I hear all my hedge words with um, alpha and theta, yeah, right. Maybe. Well, some of what <laughs> Dean Radin was doing in that regard is like what is happening in the brain just prior to the recognition of something that we would call precognitive. That's right. That's right. And I've done those studies too. And there's a bunch of people, not a bunch, there's about 12 people around the world who have, who have done those studies. But the mm-hmm. problem is that the kind of precognition that's super useful is the kind of precognition where you can get information about a future event hours or days before it occurs. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of precognition is the kind where we really want to nail down what's going on with the brain so we could maybe, you know, play a particular soundtrack and now the person's really good, right? Yes. And that's right. that's the hardest question to answer. So I'm I'm hot on the trail of that, but um, yes. just a, just a plug for, you know, anyone who has extra change who wants to spend it on precognition research. 
give it to me yeah. or someone else who's doing this. And <laughs> That's you know, right. There's not a lot of funding yeah. from NIH. I got funding from NIH to do other stuff. But there's not a lot oh. of funding from N. Or let, let me just put it another way. Not there's no that. funding from NIH for this. Oh, God. I'm so disappointed. Yeah. You know, uh, one of the uh, interesting things, since we're talking about brainwaves just for the moment, is uh, um, an interview I did with Dr. Richard Davidson, uh, professor sure. at the University of uh, right, um, Wisconsin-Madison. Wisconsin. Well, his work with uh, the Tibetan monks that he was asked to do by His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And now, maybe you could help to explain this because I don't understand. I have had this understanding through the use, by the way, of meditation and binaural beat and sound to bring me into not only alpha and not only theta, but actually into delta and seeking in that very slow brain wave frequency uh, to stay conscious, which is one very challenging uh, effort. But he found something called gamma waves were being generated by the Tibetan monks that he had in his lab uh, in Wisconsin. And uh, they seem to be, we could call them super beta. Now, why would a monk, if you were thinking about it, Julia, and equating a deeper state with a meditative state that you would think these uh, fellows would have rather well mastered, they're actually generating a, a wave pattern that's beyond beta. It's like in the opposite direction. Oh, yeah. Well, a couple things. So Does that make all, any sense creates, to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. Because, first of all, you have to get that the, we, we, like, we want it to be that you can say that there's a very simple relationship between these, these oscillations in the brain and um, different States. So people learn about alpha and theta and delta, and they think, good, going down is good, you know? Well, yes. You know, it's good. It's all the context. Foiled, the foiled again. Foiled again, right? <laughs> right. I mean, like, going to delta would be horrible if you're driving, right? Oh, so, my God, yes, right. Yeah, yeah. So you would just be freaked out and, and not useful. Um, gamma is something everyone produces. What, what Richie Davidson found was that um, – that Buddhist monks who meditate over a long period of time are producing a significantly greater amount of gamma. So everyone's right. producing gamma, everyone is producing beta, theta, delta, and we're producing all oh, those things sure. all the time all over the brain. So so yes. just to be clear, it's not like your brain is just one big thing that's oscillating. Wave, okay. brain, it's, it's just it's one like big a, alpha wave. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it, it, your brain is not like a symphony, and it has all sure. these different frequencies, and they're all useful. So Gamma has been correlated in many studies with awareness. Um, okay. So if you think of Mark, Mark Beeman's studies on the AHA, you know his stuff on the insight or AHA experience? Uh, no, I don't. And I've heard of that, but I didn't, have his, I didn't have the name behind it. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So plugging a Northwestern colleague, but his studies um, on the insight experience, and he uses... A, an, a, a word task that is very difficult to solve when you're analyzing things, but it's easier to solve when you're just intuitive. You let it. Mm-hmm. Did we lose you again? Maybe you're going up a mountain or down or... 
Uh, hello? Oh, she has disappeared, so to speak. That's not true that she literally disappeared, folks, but just for the moment. So I'll take a moment to say you are listening to A Better World with Mitchell J. Rabin. We are on every Wednesday at 6 p.m., although sometimes we do alter that, so pay attention. And I know you all really listen in archive at your leisure, and that's absolutely fine. So from that point of view, it doesn't matter one bit when we're on. But I also want to remind you that one time it will matter is every Monday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time when you can go to our website, abetterworld.tv, and you can watch our show on television if you're not in Manhattan. So please do that as well as get on our A Better World newsletter, which we send out once a week to announce our shows, events, and other fun, good things, including my blog. So on that note, Julia has re-arrived, and we're speaking with <laughs> Julia Mossbridge today. Poof, you're demonstrating a level of manifestation I'm very fascinated by. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, come. You come and go, right? <laughs> Sorry about that, yeah. <laughs> so please pick up where you were talking about the aha. Uh, can you hear me? I can. Okay. So slightly yeah, broken up. Go for it. Okay. Just before people are correct on this word task that requires intuition, there's yes. a gamma burst, a burst of gamma in a certain part of their brain. But before that, it's all alpha. So it's like, again, this relationship between the part that says, uh, I'm receiving, I'm receiving, and then, ooh, I got it, here I am. Yes. So yes. it makes sense to me that the mucks would have more gamma because it's about awareness. It's about here I am. This is happening right yes. now. It's almost about being present. Yes. That's really interesting. I really appreciate that. really helps to clarify something for me. I, I, and, and it also helps to clarify what is beta, too, um, because we tend to think of it as a bit um, uh, maybe a little – got a lot of static in it and it's kind of a uh soup uh, not necessarily super aware but um almost high strung but it's not necessarily that it really is a, no, a quality of awareness done. yeah Sorry? if you want to get anything done if you want to get any task done so yeah beta is, is thought in the in the world of cognitive neuroscience is often thought of as like the get things done exactly and so if you want to function in the world, you love your beta, you love your gamma, you love your alpha, you, better, you, love, you love your exactly, beta, you, know, you love it all. Exactly. And, and it's a, what's amazing is that the brain knows, you know, a well-functioning brain knows where to go with what part of the brain at what time. So that's pretty yes, cool. Yes, exactly. You know, Julia, I, I seem to recall that uh, whales have this ability to sleep a part of their body and brain while other parts are in motion. So dolphins, this just underscores. And dolphins yeah. also. This just underscores the point you were making dolphins. before. I'm sorry? Oh, yeah. It's toothed whales like dolphins and killer whales. They sleep with one hemisphere at a time so the other one can remain awake and, and yes. surface to the 
surface of the water and breathe and, and, and keep an eye open for any kind of predators. All those functions, so, um, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's so interesting way. because that way you know that they have multiple multiple waves absolutely simultaneously, one of yeah. which, including Delta, so a part of their body is literally asleep. It's almost, you could say, somebody's sleeping, but they have one eye open. It just occurred to me. Well, they literally do. You can see it in the, in the aquarium. If uh, you ever go see toothed whales at the Chicago Shed Aquarium, they have um, yeah. beluga whales there, and you can see them with one eye open and one eye closed. Absolutely. So some oh, razors really? are much much more beautifully complex and dynamic than we tend to give them credit for simply because we're very early in our understanding of how the brain works. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So what, what have you come across in the science, really, Julia, that shows you what is going on that kind of the true scientific basis to what we refer mm-hmm. to as precognition, to that 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 sense of knowing that we that that really confirms that intuition we have of the reality of this. Yeah. So it's um, so they're all laboratory experiments or experiments that have been done online using controlled methods. Um, and the reason I say that is because no matter how t- many times someone tells you wow, I had this dream of, you know, I dropped all the lottery numbers and I won the lottery, like this guy in Virginia last year who won the lottery after dream, mm-hmm. and he entered four, four times, and uh, he was right, so he won a lot of money. Um, mm-hmm. so, the, so the chances of that being anything other than precognition are very small, right? You can calculate them. They're exactly the chances of, of winning the lottery. Um, so, yeah. so that's fantastic, but... Yes. The problem is if you're not in controlled laboratory uh, conditions, it's hard to know if that is happening at a rate above chance. So what, what you need to find that out are experiments that we have done, and I say we, I see my, myself and other people who work in this field, um, where you have a random number generator that's choosing some kind of a target from a target pool. And a target pool it means like sounds or images or videos, um, some kind of experience that lies in the future of the person who's the experimental subject. And the random number generator has to choose that future experience. Could you define what that is for our audience? Yeah, yeah. Let me give you an example. So let's pretend you're an experimental subject in this kind of experiment. An experimenter invites you in the room and says, hey, please sit down in front of this computer. And in one kind of experiment, they would actually tell you, this is a precognition experiment. We're just checking to see if people can predict the future. So in this kind Mm -hmm. of experiment, they might give you four images and say, which of these four images is going to be the image that the computer chooses to show you in about a minute, right? And the person's Mm -hmm. job has to be to click with the mouse on one of those images. And after they click, and this is the really important thing to make this a controlled experiment, after they click, then a random number generator would select which of the four images to show them. So you already get the piece of information that you're looking for, which is what, which one they choose, before the random number generator produces the next event. And what you're looking for is a statistical relationship between what they chose and what the event is. And most people are crappy at this. Most people operate right at chance. But mm-hmm. some people are really good. And some people are above chance. 
and they can, over time, you can test them again and again. And you find, nope, they're still above chance. Yep, you know, on average, they're they're looking good. They they seem to have this skill. So that's mm-hmm. called conscious precognition experiments because you're conscious. The person's the experimental subject is told this is a precognition experiment. That's pretty tricky yes. because we have a lot of defenses against that. But mm-hmm. when you tell an experimental subject an experiment that usually works better and it's easier to find a whole group of people just off the street who could do it, is you don't you tell them or you don't tell them if. You, if you just say this is an experiment, we're looking at how your body changes or how your behavior correlates with events in time. And then you just have them do a task. Now, it turns out that the task is a precognition task, but it's not obvious. So this kind of experiment is called implicit precognition experiments. And the way it would work is if you're an experimental subject, I would invite you to sit down in front of a computer because, of course, that's how all these experiments start. And I would say to you, um, so there's going to be something on the screen, like a picture, and you'll do a bunch of trials. And each picture, I want you to tell me uh, whether that was a positive or negative picture. And I want you to tell me by pressing this button for positive and that button for negative. And try to do it as quickly as you can, but, you know, don't pressure yourself. Just respond when you can about the pictures. And just so you know, after you respond, you'll see a word. It'll be an adjective. That's not important as Uh-oh, that's not important was the last thing we really heard, Julia. That's not important. <laughs> it is important that we remember the last words you said. <laughs> okay, Julia Mossbridge is our guest tonight, a neuroscientist, fellow at IONS, the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and she is Back. So please pick up where you were. You said it's not sure. important was your last phrase. <laughs> yeah, so it turns out that um, that you, you tell the person, the experimental subject, like, look, the word that you see after the picture is not important. What's important is that you just respond, was the picture positive or negative? And then you do a bunch of trials. And this is an experiment yes. that was uh, spearheaded by Daryl Bam at Cornell University. And so what he showed and what many people showed after him is that the the rate of responding, you know, was it a positive or negative picture? Like, let's say it's a picture of a girl with an ice cream cone. So you would respond mm-hmm. positive. But the rate at which you respond positive, the speed with which you respond, is significantly correlated to the wor- the type of word that follows your response. So if the type of word that follows your response after the girl with the ice cream cone, if, if the word is, like, dangerous, that's, that's going to make you respond more slowly to the girl with the ice cream cone than if the word that comes after your response is delightful. Because delightful matches the girl and dangerous doesn't match the girl. So your mind is taking into account, in a way it's like time symmetric, your response. Your mind is taking into account what's coming immediately before, but also what's coming immediately after. Mm. And it's responding accordingly. And so that's called an implicit precognition experiment. And even people who don't believe in precognition can show this effect. So this is this is not a conscious wow. effect. This is this is your body's doing it, and you yeah. don't know it's yeah. doing it. Interesting. So that also 
leads into another subject that you discuss in the book, The Premonition Code, Julia, which is this idea of nonlinear time, of, of this notion of experience going backward or time going backward and forward, that we have very much a kind of a, a set mental pattern of this idea of the progression of time, yet you're saying even in the book that there's the physics that lays out the, uh, not just the likelihood, but the reality, and please correct me if my understanding is incorrect, uh, the reality of the movement of time backwards as well as forward, giving us this, this push-pull experience. Yeah, the only thing I would... Is that related to what this experiment is? Does this, it seems related to if, if the word after you've responded to the image is affecting uh, the speed at which you're cognizing the image. It's, yeah, you, yeah. you see what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we, we don't know if that particular effect, which is a quantum mechanical effect, and I think you're talking yes. about the delayed choice experiment or the, the probably oh, the yeah. delayed choice quantum eraser experiment. So that's a quantum yes. mechanical effect that shows that a decision that you make in an experimental a particular experimental setup in quantum mechanics, if you if you make a decision after a wave slash particle has apparently it seems to have traveled through a particular location and I'm using hedge words because there's all sorts of interpretations for this. If you make the decision yes. after the time at which you would presume that that would have been there, you can influence the way that it was going. So the verb tenses are really weird too, but basically a yes. decision made after the fact can influence what happened. So that does seem to be difficult to interpret without suggesting something like retrocausality, but we don't know if retrocausality in the quantum sense is what causes the same kind of the effect that looks the same at the behavioral level. Certainly it's a good possibility to think about, right? Because it's one of the few physical results that seem to match the behavioral result. But I just sort of want to leave it open for future uh, scientists, including myself, to try to nail that down because the mechanism of precognition, while there are some interesting hypotheses out there, including some of my own, um, is really unknown, and there's a lot of work that needs to be done to try to figure that out. And I, I think what we'll end up finding, I mean, so of course I'll tell you my secret hypothesis, right? <laughs> but yes, please. Completely false, but yeah, my speculative hypothesis, which is clearly not secret, um, is that <laughs> um, is that we're going to find out that in physical reality, outside of our conscious experience, that time is moving in both directions. And when I say time is moving, I shouldn't really say that. It's imprecise. I should say that events are flowing. Information is flowing in both directions. That information is going time symmetrically out from the source of the uh, the signal. And that it is the case that our conscious experience is designed so that we have to go in one direction in time. So we have chosen one direction in time, and that's the direction we are traveling with our flow of events. But that doesn't mean that in physical reality there there isn't some kind of time symmetry. So that's sort of my sense. So interesting. It's, it's a little hard to kind of get one's mind around as well because, in a sense, yes. it shows how uh, kind of rutted we are. We have the um, neural entrainment 
to an habituation that things go forward. And, of course, things go backward like you could – uh, take a film clip, for instance, and yeah. go backward, or uh, an audio clip, for that matter, right? Or we can walk right. backwards. But even walking right. backwards, the flow of time we still perceive is going forward. So right. we realize that, I mean, maybe uh, I actually think of time as a mental construct. It, it might not even exist at all. So as a mental construct, we can play with it and morph it. it it's sort of plastic, um, well, you know, possible, it, but the mental constructs are the ones that stick so much. I mean, they're the yes, hardest true. to 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 deal with. Change like, it took forever. Yeah. That took forever for physicists to tell the world, like, look, there are other forms of light that are not visible, because we decide that visible light is the only kind of light. Right? Because yes. That's... Yes. Yes. Yeah, I, I know. I've been using that analogy forever. I mean, you could even use the the existence of a bacteria, which no one saw until Leeuwenhoek, you know, in Holland. Uh, you know, people, the old idea of show me, I mean, is so actually primitive if you think about it. Yes, Julia has gone up another mountain and is back on her way down and has rejoined our better world. So... Yes, I was just saying that I, I know I've used the analogy about the light spectrum or the audio spectrum for that matter, and uh, I also yeah. made reference to the old, um, I actually think he was a custodian at a high school um, named Leavenhook back in, I think, was it the 19th century, who first Leavenhook, discovered yeah. right uh, bacteria. Right. So anyone can say yeah. anything foolish like, if I don't see it, it doesn't exist, or I don't sense yeah. it in the ordinary but sense, foolish. but that's 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 way foolish. So we don't even take that kind of uh, foolishness seriously here at a better no, world. No, <laughs> you know, no, we don't no, have the right. time for I, that. I'm to, right, I'm Please. trying to explain that what we're what we're up against here with, because even when you start, even when you start saying, "Look, I get that that's foolish," opening up, you have to do two things to do science in this area. You have to both open up your mind to things not behaving in the way that your sort of folk wisdom tells you that things behave. Yes. And at the same time, you need to try to account for all the phenomena that you know already happen. So Yes, so exactly. You have to be, it's the same thing as that creative process or the precognition process where you have the part that says, look, this I know and this I know, and the other part that says, but what can I receive about what I don't know? And it's That's this right. relationship that ends up building sort of the future of science from it. So it's a fascinating, to me, that's also a mystical path where the science, science and yes. control precognition are really similar that way. So, yeah. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. You know, and even just the idea of keep an open mind is a really interesting notion in itself. And we all use that phrase to one extent or another. Um, you know, we mean it. But there's a certain kind of um, glibness to it, too. But it's actually a really interesting mental state. So it's sort of like you're suspending your commonly traveled neural pathways in order to create a state of – you give yourself the um, intention of openness – which sort of relaxes, this is just my own way of putting it, relaxes the neural uh, motion that would ordinarily rather automatically kick into place. 
Yeah, sort of interesting. The way I think of it is, is very similar, except it's like this. It's like you have, you're normally used to following sort of on your day-to-day when you're not sort of in the open mind state. You're used to following the most probable neural pathways. So you're, you're yes. going to the 80%. You're not going to the 20%. But you, when you say open mind, open mind you're, you're, you're sort of having, giving a top-down command to say, and now we're going to go to the 20%. <laughs> we're yes, going to go to the exactly. 20%, and we're going to keep going down the path. So, yeah, I think that's yeah. beautiful. The other thing I was thinking about is how similar this sort of experience of the phone going in and out yes. in this way. How similar? Yes. I mean, I wonder, I kept thinking, what is that, what is that trying to tell us? And what came to yes. mind is the, um, the oscillations in understanding in any field the oscillations of yes, I get it, and then no, I don't, and yes, I now I'm clouded. No, now it's clear, and those oscillations, um, we sort of we sort of think there could be some way. I mean, I think it's sort of standard in Western culture to think that there should be some way where you could just have clarity and have no lack of clarity. But I think those oscillations are key. I think that jumping in and out of these familiar and known cycles and going into unknown. It's that relationship, yes. it's that oscillation that builds yes. uh, discovery. Exactly. Sort of, I remember my uh, old teacher of neurolinguistic programming, who was one of the founders of it, Richard Bandler, used to say yeah. that before a real awareness and recognition and moment of clarity occurs, we're actually in a state of confusion. And That's it's right. almost like a cloud, you know, and then out of which emerges um, a sense of uh, intuitive clarity about something. So it very much follows that pattern of, uh, you know, disorganization uh, followed by, you know, sort of an ebb following followed by a flow, which is uh, another level, as Prigogine would talk about, another level of organization. Yes, it's another level of organization, and I think the, the more in our culture we try to think that the, that the goal would be to go in a straight line and not have these oscillations, the more yes. we misunderstand the, the criticality of this of this dynamic oscillatory experience. So, yeah, I'm, I, let's go oscillations. <laughs> let's go isolation exactly you know and you know to continue the metaphor you could look at night and day and the sleep cycle and the waking cycle there's a perfect example of it because if the linearity that you're referring to that everything is just going along chugging along one line of clarity in some kind of a logical form means that you wouldn't sleep because who wants to take the time to sleep but if you do not right. sleep your mind and your brain will not get the nourishment in that deep, uh, like we were talking about before, that deep well, if you will, of theta and delta energy intelligence welling up, you know, into the conscious uh, mind, right? Oh, uh, even even more so. I think we've completely got it backwards. I think waking hours are basically about feeding your body. So that when you go to sleep, you could sleep and get your work done. I, I think we've completely got it backwards about when we do the most important work. Yeah. 
No, that's very interesting. That's very interesting. Well, you know, if you really want to extend that out one more step, you could even look at the whole space of what we refer to as life um, in a body and life after the body. Well, you know, yeah. the corporeal life and the non-corporeal life. You well, could say, you know, as the right? oscillation again, exactly. Just yeah. you know, the yeah. la- the larger level. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. I I personally think that one is actually in full service to the other, and it's not yeah. that one is better than the other, but one is the direct nourishment of the other for the other. Yeah, it's like it's like a tree, right? The roots are directly nourishing the leaves, but the leaves are also directly nourishing the, the roots. They're, they're, exactly. They have a that's right, that's right. And it really does, the whole inquiry of parapsychology in general really opens up uh, the mystical aspect of ourselves, which is something that science, by and large, has just not reckoned with at all. So that's part of the joy of what you're doing here, um, which I know I so appreciate, not to mention just the whole domain of the subconscious. This is just, besides yeah. Freud and then Jung and that whole clique of psychoanal- yeah. uh, psychoanalysts, really it has not seen, no pun intended, the light of day, you know, in scientific well, circles. Well, yeah, I mean, Freud and Jung used to talk about sort of a U-shaped connection between the client and the therapist, and they weren't saying that, when they talked about accessing the unconscious of the client from the analyst's point of view, they weren't saying... Yes have the client tell you more about themselves. They were saying, psychically access the unconscious of the client. That's right. So they were they were talking about forming a, a connection, though they didn't use those words. And, and then you, there's actual, uh, in, in my book, Transcendent Line with Imats Barus, there's actual, we, we cite actual um, letters from Freud talking about, well, should I talk about the psychic component of psychoanalysis? Nah, <laughs> we'll, get made fun, yes. we'll get made fun of too much. We have enough trouble already. But clearly, <laughs> clearly that's yes. what they were talking about. Very yeah. interesting. Yeah. yeah, very interesting. In fact, you know, Bruno Bettelheim's book, Freud and Man's Soul, really goes yeah. into that in depth and how it was really the American psychoanalytic society which composed was composed originally of all MDs. They wouldn't let anybody That's else, right. even a psychologist, in because they wanted to clean up, right? They wanted to clean up Freud's language because they considered yes. it way too mystical. Yes, and we're going to make it very, you know, compartmentalized, and and uh, yeah. we're going to draw arrows between each of these pieces, which is all a bunch of crap. <laughs> that's right, that's right. So, well, reality is showing them what's true, after all, you know. But it's I interesting so. for me. Yeah, me too, me too. But it's interesting to me, Julia, because it appears that even though there are many controlled experiments that give indications of the reality. So so we've got a couple of things. On one hand, we have what we know, what we'll call intuitively, or I love the, you know, the um, Star Trek word grok. Um, in fact, before I told you the story about San Francisco, I was going to tell you that my main experience of cognition, precognition, and intuition is through a sense of knowing that there is mm-hmm. something, I'm told a story about this person. Now, granted, 
I am a therapist, so I'm mm-hmm. used to hearing stories about people's lives and the relationships between them, and I'm sort of, I feel, I guess I'm reading the energy fields between the people and the level of agreement and alignment and the, and the, uh, the kind of conflict that exists. And somehow mm-hmm. a clarity dawns on me, and I will say to the client, I know this to be the case. And I can't even mm-hmm. tell you how I know it, but I mm-hmm. you can count on it. And I feel that sense of knowing, whatever that is, coursing through my body. And I have mm-hmm. not, I don't remember ever being shown that I was wrong when it's mm-hmm. that kind of somatic sense of knowing. Yeah, and by the way, that somatic sense of knowing does not feel the same as sort of the grandiose, knowing of uh, there's a different feeling. I know what you're talking about. There's this grandiose note, thinking that you know something about someone where you're sort of like taking over. Um, yeah. There's like taking over energy as opposed to the co-creative. They're allowing you to see into them and you know and you and it doesn't feel grandiose. It feels like a strong truth of which you are confident but that is not about your ego. Yes. And um, that that difference yes. is really key, and, and training therapists to understand that difference would be a really good thing to do. Yes, exactly, exactly. So on <laughs> one hand, we have, this is the kind of the distinction I'm looking to make here. On one hand, like in your book, you have aggregated so many anecdotes. Now, I personally feel that anecdotes have scientific value by the way, for the yeah. record. Um, so, yeah, of but course they it do. Is of course a, they do. It's a, of course they do. They have very real scientific validity, and I we will establish that completely here on A Better World. However, there's the <laughs> other level of um, other level of scientific query, which says yeah. you have to demonstrate using some sort of measures what you're sure. referring to as this phenomenon called precognition. So right. what I'm gathering from you and the work you've done, you've done both. But would yeah. you, it seems perhaps that the the anecdotal is actually domain is more uh, prominent or predominant than the other lab test. You mean predominant in what, in my work or in the world? Yeah, yeah. Overall, which, which, oh, in the world, uh, that 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 the um, empirical work of you know basically the um, the anecdotal and analyzing the anecdotes and the probability of them over time is sort of the greater piece in ratio uh, to the what you have found in the actual lab that will uh, confirm or deny the presence of uh, precognition. I think I understand what you're saying, but I'm not sure, so I'm going to answer it this way. Um, When I want to convince someone that precognition is a real thing, I say to them, and they're a scientist, because most most other people kind of get it, but when I talk to scientists and I want to convince them, I say, look, do you want me to go over the data, or do you want me to tell you a, a very powerful anecdote from my own experience? Yes. And they there we go. You say, hit it. Yeah. They will tell me a story. Say, tell me your story, and then we'll talk about the data. 
And in yeah, fact, Jessica Hutz, Jessica Hutz, who's an, an amazing researcher in this field, asked a group of statisticians that she was the president of the American Statistical Association for a while. She said uh-huh. in her talk, would you rather have an anecdote or would you rather know about the statistics? And they said, anecdote, hands down. And they're statisticians. So <laughs> I think that's that's the nature of human beings, right? Correct. We're storytellers. And we love yeah. to tell and we love to hear. So when, when I get together with you in person, I'll tell you some of my compelling anecdotes. But we'll also do an exercise I would love, if you're willing, with the audience uh, around pre Yes. And I think that would be really cool. Definitely. Definitely. People will just eat that up for sure. Well, what last words would you like to shower on our audience this evening? It's so much fun. You and I, I think, just can explore nonstop. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. We could just go and go. <laughs> Have you noticed? <laughs> um, the words I would like to, to say in closing are um, – Come and join us if you can in New York City. And if you can't, go to the website, thepremonitioncode.com, and uh, check out the precog training, which is free and delightful. Fantastic. Julia Mossbridge, what a pleasure to have you on A Better World this evening. And uh, I look so forward to seeing you soon. We're going to have a lot of fun and uh, do the world a lot of good. I want to say also in uh, my closing with you right now that – to me, this is not just some fanciful inquiry. This is actually an extremely grounded effort to understand the farther reaches of the human mind, human consciousness, and human potential. And there are reasons that these potentials exist, which are the idea of survival. We are here to survive and thrive, of course. But the first step the brain has is to keep us alive from moment to moment. And if we have access to what you are kind of walking us through um, and developing these skill sets, our chances and probability of staying alive for longer are rather geometrically increased. That's right. That's right. It's evolutionarily sound. I'll tell you that. Absolutely. So on that note, thanks again for being on today with me. And uh, we'll pick up very soon. My pleasure. Very soon. Good night now. Good night. So, good night. Julia Mossbridge, how lovely. Um, Just doing such really interesting work. Some of it's a bit hard to follow, and some of it is like, Ah, a breeze, a flow. But, you know, that's, uh, there's the flowing nature and there's the jagged nature of all reality. And the jagged parts are good because it kind of administers a shock to the system. And through that, we get another level of awareness. And as she was talking about the oscillations, so let's say we go to a, from a smooth alpha state and all of a sudden there's a breakthrough for whatever reason, whether it's an internal shock, an external shock, some stimulus somewhere, all of a sudden uh, creates uh, the expression of gamma waves. So interesting. And that's what we could call a, you know, an interesting thought, breakthrough, insight. And uh, it's kind of mapped out these days, which I find very, very interesting. So, 
If you are able to join us in the Big Apple, if you don't know if you can come, make sure you let your friends and family or we have listeners in India and Australia and South Africa and Mexico and uh, I think it's even Romania these days. Um, please, UK, of course, Canada, all over the United States. Tell your friends. Everybody's got friends in the New York area. Let them know that we will be gathering on Tuesday, October 30th at 7 p.m. at the Ascension Church I really recommend that you get tickets in advance and save yourself uh, a third of the cost. It's only $10. It's essentially a donation to a Better World Foundation. So we very much appreciate it. And we'd rather have you pay as little as possible um, and still get to enjoy the riches of what will be shared between Julia and myself that evening. Uh, we'll also be on Catherine... Um, Catherine uh, Davis's uh, WBAI show, her PRN show, a longtime friend of a better world, will be on uh, Alan Steinfeld's New Realities as well coming up. So we're also, of course, all over Facebook and on Julia Mossbridge's own websites. So. Uh, you also want to definitely pick up the book, The Premonition Code, because that will give you a premonition into what is to come. So thanks so much for joining. Remember that we have all sorts of services here at A Better World, from coaching and counseling to biofeedback and reading your energy fields. And just contact me at 212 420 0800 for any of those, the Harmonic Energetic Balancing Program, where through your photograph, we are feeding your field with uh, all sorts of homeopathic remedies and the like, flower essences, etc. And we also have a number of DVDs of our interviews on our Amazon site, which you can get to from abetterworld.tv. On that note, I want to just thank you all for listening and joining us tonight. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. We were speaking with Julia Mossbridge, neuroscientist at large, who will be coming to New York and is the author of a couple of books, last of which is The Premonition Code. And pick it up, get in tune, and I look forward to seeing you all 